the last several months, you know, y'all know this, the governors and health officials have been trying to get the coronavirus under control. And so they've, they've tried different things, done different things. We're all wearing masks now as an effort to mitigate against the spread. Thousands of businesses have been shuttered. Schools closed before the year was done. And churches locked their doors. And, uh, you know, our, our state, we've been really blessed in Texas that as far as regulations on what churches can or can't do, we've had a lot of freedoms that other places haven't had. Now, my best friend Dave's a pastor at Cornerstone Church in Leavenworth, Washington. And they are meeting today for their first gathered assembly outside, but still their first gathered assembly since March 15th. And uh, they're so excited, you can imagine. I mean, every, every church, this is one of the, I guess, the bright spots people say, all these denominational people keep telling me, you know, this is one of the best things that's happened to the church because a lot of the little churches, kind of like ours, have always said, oh, it'd be great if we had a website or great if we put our sermons out online. But this has really forced them to do that, you know, which is, I guess, one way. The Grateful Dead, you know, they turned it around and they said, every, uh, every cloud's got a touch of gray. And I think that's kind of flipping it, but true, right? That's no silver lining. That's, let's, that's putting lipstick on a pig. Nothing good really has come from this. Nothing good has come from it at all. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be funny, but it's true. <laughs> nothing, nothing really. I mean, um, while our churches have been closed, um, you know, many pastors have sort of fallen into this, this mindset, and I've been among them, that, hey, the most important thing is to keep providing services. Provide the services, provide the services, provide the services. And um, it's good, I think. I mean, it's better than the alternative of just dropping off the map completely. But I think three months in, our brothers and sisters in Leavenworth or our brothers and sisters in Hong Kong, I saw a video this morning of uh, a group of protesters in Hong Kong. And you, you think the people of Hong Kong are going through a lot right now, being taken over by the China, Chinese Communist Party. But this crowd of people singing, sing hallelujah to the Lord. You got to go and look this up. Try to find it. Got lights on their cell phone. Thousands of people singing this song, sing hallelujah to the Lord, over and over and over. You think they'd give anything together openly as a church. You know, I think something we understand now is lost when God's people can't gather Something unique about the church. We know the church isn't a building. But watching church on TV is not the same as gathering together in the church. And so something, you know, some people probably welcome closed churches. But as long as i got breath in my lungs and I'm able to roll my body out of the bed, I'm going to want to go to church. And there's a reason for that. This morning, our text uh, has been called one of the greatest passages on the church in all of the New Testament. And in it, you're going to see in just a second, we, we see a basic simple truth. That by his death, Jesus reconciled all kinds of people to God and united them in the church. The way we're going to do this is a little strange because I was telling Mike earlier, this passage is primarily about Gentiles and Jews. 
and the very particular set of circumstances that were going on in the first century church. Situations that we, we don't comprehend. We're not having debates among ourselves about whether we should eat kosher or not. We all agree bacon is one of God's blessings to mankind. And we gladly eat it every day. But there are some principles from this passage that apply to our present cultural moment in a way that we just have to be transparent and honest before the Lord about. And so what I want to do is work quickly through an explanation of this passage. I want to show you three things. Um, let's see if I can get it right. The three things I want to show you are the state of alienation, the work of reconciliation, and the place of habitation. All right, so we're going to go through these one by one, but it's the state of alienation, the work of reconciliation, and the place of habitation. And then I want to pull out three applications to apply to each of us individually, to lay ourselves bare before the Lord and to ask Him to do His work of probing our hearts. See, because last week we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the individual implications of the gospel. You, you remember this, that we're made alive in Christ. We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. We're sinners separated from God by a life of sin. But God brings us to him. He raises us from the dead, seats us with Christ in the heavens. That's the individual implications of the gospel message. Totally life-changing. When we get our heads wrapped around that, it changes everything. The way we think about God, the way we think about ourselves. But God's not interested in just saving a bunch of individuals and leave them to find whatever religious goods and services they can on the internet. He brings them together into a new corporate into a body that he calls the church. That's what we see here in verses 11 through 22, the corporate implications of the gospel. It's not just that those who were dead have been made alive, but it's those who were alienated have been reconciled and brought near to be inhabited by God. And so first I want you to see the state of alienation. Paul looks right at the Gentiles and he says, Hey, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. First thing Paul wanted the Gentiles in the church of Ephesus to remember is that you were once alienated. And he does it with seven negative descriptors. They must have felt the sting of each one of them, all seven of them. One, you're Gentiles. That's a not Jew, right? You're not circumcised. You're not with Christ. You're not a citizen of Israel. You're not a recipient of the covenant. You don't have any hope, and you don't have God. That's the state of alienation Paul wanted the Gentiles to remember. Maybe you know that seven is a number of completion, comprehensiveness, perfection in the Bible. I don't know, but as I was thinking about this this week, Paul uses seven terms. He almost presses home the point too strongly, holistically, comprehensively, in every way possible. You are perfectly alienated from God. Of course, Paul says that this alienation begins with their ethnicity. The, the Greek word for Gentile is ethna, ethna, the nations. For us, we recognize there's a multiplicity of nations. I looked it up. 
there are over 5,000 ethnicities recognized in the world. 5,000 different people groups. For the Jews, it was much simpler. There was Jews and not Jews. The nations. The, the Romans had a similar thing. There were Romans and there were barbarians. They had it very dualistic. We recognize a multiplicity of ethnicities. But it was simple for them. Of course, the Jews were those who descended by physical ancestry from Abraham, their father. And so they had the mark of their covenant membership in circumcision. But what Paul says is that both the Gentiles and Jews needed salvation. He talks about this in verses 1 through 10. But only the Gentiles were separated from Christ. This is interesting. You think about it. The promise of a coming Messiah was really given to one nation, Israel. The Messiah was going to be a Jew. And when he came, he was going to bring restoration to the Jewish people. He was going to reestablish the throne of David. So Gentiles, they're on the outside looking in of all the messianic blessings. Furthermore, they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They weren't citizens of the nation. They didn't share in the blessing of David's reign. Instead, they looked across the battlefield and saw David with a slingshot or a sword bearing down on him. They weren't permitted to enjoy the privileges of obtaining the covenants of promise. These are the promises that were irrevocable, established on God's grace alone, unconditional promises to Abraham, of offspring, of blessing, promises made to David of an everlasting kingdom, a son always on his throne. And of course, the promise given in the new covenant to take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. These are the covenants of promise Paul is talking about. And he says, you Gentiles were totally alienated and separated. These are promises made to the Jewish people alone. And because of that, you're without hope and you're without God in the world. That's a bleak picture, one that really doesn't fit with the egalitarian mindset of the modern world. You know, we supposedly live in a pluralistic society where every religion, ideology, ethnicity, each is equally valid. We don't like the scriptures that, that give a privileged position to certain folks. And we read in Romans 3, Paul says, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul's answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Later in Romans 9, he says, They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Privileged position. Gentiles outside looking in. Holy, comprehensively perfectly alienated from God and therefore without hope in the world. But then Paul draws their attention to the work of reconciliation. Verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both, Jew and Gentile, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both 
Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, Gentiles, who were far off, and peace to those Jews who were near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So here Paul lays out the work of reconciliation. Paul says to the Gentiles, yeah, you were at one time alienated, but that's not the case any longer. You've now been brought near. You've been reconciled. Maybe you heard it, but this reconciliation has two dimensions. It's 2D. There's vertical reconciliation between God and man, and there's horizontal reconciliation between neighbors, Jews and Gentiles. We'll start with the horizontal reconciliation. Verses 14 through 16. Paul says that reconciliation rests on the fact in verse 14 that he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so what was it? What, what was the line in the sand that made one person a Jew and another person a Gentile? You should read the commentaries. Everybody tries to figure it out. They think maybe Paul's talking about a literal wall in the temple. And metaphorically speaking, that temple is torn down. But really, if you read it closely, it's obvious that what Christ has broken down in his flesh is the law itself. The law of God, which established the clear boundaries. I mean, you think about this. Paul mentioned circumcision several times. That's one thing for sure. The second are the dietary and cleanliness restrictions that Jews were expected to keep. Because of them, they didn't live near Gentiles. They didn't intermingle with Gentiles. They didn't work together. They didn't worship together. They didn't intermarry. They didn't eat together. There was a sharp distinction made. And what was supposed to make Israel distinct and unique, a light among the nations, ended up becoming for them an opportunity to express hostility and superiority. And it went both ways. The Romans hated the Jews, despised them. When they thought of the worst insult they could do, they'd call them pigs. The Jews hated the Romans. They were occupiers. They were the oppressors. So we read in Acts 18 that during the Roman emperor Claudius's reign, all the Jews were banished from Rome. He just said, all, right, all you Jews, get out. And they did. And that's how Paul met his friends Priscilla and Aquila, who ended up staying in Ephesus and, and really laboring in the church. At the same time, the animosity from the Jews to Gentile took on a, a really um, concrete expression as well. Maybe you know, in the temple courts, they had various levels of nearness to the Holy of Holies and God's presence. The priests could go the closest. The, the high priest went in the Holy of Holies, but then in the outer room, the other priests who were ministering could go. Beyond that, there was the priest of the Levite, the, the court of the Levites, where the priestly family could go and worship. Beyond that was the priest of the Jewish, the court of the Jewish men. Jewish men could go closer. Then there was a court for Jewish women. And then on the outside, there was a court for the Gentiles. A high wall. It was actually um, a little bit lower on the Temple Mount than the rest of the complex. And uh, there they were on the outside looking in. It was really obvious. In fact, in both the 19th and 20th centuries, two things were discovered as they did archaeological excavation of the Temple Mount. Two temple inscriptions. They say the same thing. They were attested in the 3rd and 4th century in the uh, Jewish historians. Everybody knew they were there. 
They actually found them. And this is what they say in Greek, so everyone can read. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and close. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. That's the, uh, on your church, put a sign. says, hey, if you come in here, we're going to shoot you on the spot, and your blood's going to be on your own head. That's what they're saying to the Gentiles. I mean, this is not a friendly relationship, even for the people who, by all appearances, have a desire to worship the God of Israel. They're still reading the sign that says, you're not welcome here, and if you come any farther, we're going to kill you, and we won't be held responsible. You will. That's a, a very distinct hostility. It's obvious to everybody. But then we come to Ephesians 2.16. And Paul says that in his body, Christ has killed the hostility. That hostility has been done away with. That's because the law, which made that hostility possible, has been rendered obsolete. I mean, we saw last week that Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. And though the Jews believed their strict withdrawal of the Gentiles could somehow accrue for themselves merit before God, uh, really what they were using the law for was a sinful self-exaltation. I mean, it's illustrated over and over again in the Gospels as Jesus has debates with the Pharisees. I think one of the best places is in his parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, where he paints the picture of the Pharisee praying before the temple, and the tax collector there beside him. We get to listen in to the Pharisee's prayer. This is how he prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. The law that was meant to show Israel their need for a Savior, to establish the sinfulness of everyone, to stop everybody's mouth before God, became an opportunity for them to express their self-righteousness, their self-sufficiency, to serve the animosity they had towards the Gentiles. But Paul says Jesus' death demonstrates that everybody's the same. There's nobody that's righteous. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 3, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus came fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf, and then suffering in our place the sins we've committed. Because of that, everybody comes to him the same. There's not a Jew entrance to life in Christ, not a Gentile entrance to life in Christ. Jews aren't allowed any closer than Gentiles. Everyone is the same. Everybody has the same problem. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, and they need to be reconciled by Christ. And because of that, because the law has been rendered obsolete, there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, Paul says over and over that what God has done is not convert Gentiles into Jews or make Jews as if they were Gentiles, but he's done something entirely new. He's created one new man, this new humanity is not based on observance of the law or anything other than identification with Jesus. And so in the church, which is this new man, this new corporate entity, everyone is the same. 
Everybody's there on the basis of faith in Christ alone. That's the horizontal reconciliation. But that rests on that vertical reconciliation that we've already been talking about, that Jesus came and died that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached, Peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This multiple times to you because this is so important. If you want an insight into the Apostle Paul's self-understanding, what he, who he understood himself to be, and the mission that he understood himself to have been given by God, we're going to see it more in detail next week, but this is it. Everywhere he went on his missionary journeys, he saw an opportunity for preaching to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He always went and started in the synagogue. He preached to those who were near. And when inevitably this message was too radical to think that God could obliterate any distinction between Jew and Gentile, when they decided that was too radical, that was too far for them to go, he said, all right, it's fine, I preached to you, and now I'm going to the Gentiles. He preached to those who were near and to those who were far off. I mean, he took this mission so seriously that when Peter came to Antioch, to see for himself the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. Paul publicly rebuked him because he decided it you know, didn't live up to expectations people had for him. The esteemed Apostle Peter, the, the foundation of the church, right? To be eating with Gentiles. And so Paul rebuked him. He said, we ourselves are Jews by birth. And not Gentile sinners. That's Paul speaking to Peter. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. See, the vertical reconciliation that Christ has accomplished death on the cross means that everybody comes to God the same. And because of that, it's inconsistent and immoral, sinful, for those who've been reconciled to God by the cross of Christ to continue living in hostility towards other people who have experienced the same thing. That's the issue, that God has welcomed Gentiles in, Peter, who do you think you are to put up another wall? We're one in Christ. Do you think that eating bacon or not has any bearing on your relationship to God? No, nobody's saved or justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. What you're doing undercuts the gospel, subverts everything you claim to stand for. And so when Paul looked at the Ephesian church, he wanted them to remember you guys had been alienated, separated, without God in the world. But now you've been brought near both to God and to His people. God has created a new thing, the church. The last thing I want you to see is that that church becomes God's place of habitation. So then you're no longer strangers. This is verse 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when Paul thinks about the results, this work of reconciliation, he draws out three descriptions. And each one of them is a reversal of the former alienation and a bestowal of blessings that nobody's worthy of. And you can't really ever quite wrap your mind around it. He says that the Gentiles' former alienation has been turned into citizenship. Their alienation has been turned into family. And now they are the temple of God. And so we'll take them one by one. I mean, he, the first metaphor, it's not really a metaphor because it's a reality, but the first picture he gives is of citizenship. He says you're citizens, full-fledged citizens, not permanent residents, green card holders, naturalized citizens now. You're as much a part of the kingdom of God as anybody who can claim to have been born in it. As much as Abraham, as much as David, as much as Isaiah and Jeremiah, as much as Peter, as much as James, as much as Paul. You belong here. You're one of us, a full-fledged citizen of the kingdom of God. But it's more than that. It says you're members of God's household. You're part of the family now. You're not the distant cousin who moved in. You're not a servant in the house. You've been adopted. You are now God's sons and daughters. But then this is key. This is the, the main thrust. In verse 20, the household metaphor shifts from family to temple. And the Jews and Gentiles of Ephesus knew about temples. Of course, the Jews had a magnificent temple in Jerusalem, a temple that all their synagogues were directed towards, so that when they prayed on the Sabbath, they prayed towards the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's glory, His name rested and dwelled, His presence on earth. They knew all about temples. The Gentiles in Ephesus did too. I told you they had a magnificent temple, one of the ancient wonder, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis of the Ephesians, as long as one and a half football fields. Massive, gargantuan. You get a, an idea of the scale. When um, that was destroyed, it was destroyed by the uh, Byzantines, the Eastern Roman Empire, and they took some of the columns from the temple of Artemis and floated them to build the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. So go and look at the picture today on Google of the Hagia Sophia, the Holy Wisdom Temple. Uh, it was originally a church. Now it's a mosque and a visitor center. Uh, look at it. Some of those columns are the same columns that were at the Temple of Artemis. They knew about magnificent temples. And what Paul said, you don't have to think about that anymore. You don't have to go to a temple to experience the presence of God. Instead, you guys are the temple. You're the place where God allows His glory to rest, His name to dwell. It's in you. Oh, of course, Christ is the cornerstone. Y'all know how the cornerstone works? It's the edge of the building. Everything else is set square to that, set level to that. Without it, if you don't get square to the cornerstone, the building's lopsided. It's out of square, out of plumb. It falls over. Christ is the cornerstone. Everything is fit to Him. But on top of Him is laid the public preaching the gospel by the apostles and the prophets, the people who saw Jesus, who received the revelation from God that now makes up our Bibles. 
But then you guys, you Jews and you Gentiles, you one new man in Christ, you're the individual bricks laid one on top of the other so that when the whole thing is done, it's a magnificent temple. The kind of place God looks at and says, hey, I think I want to stay there. I think I want my presence to be there. I think I want to live among these people. And so the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, once alienated, now reconciled, become the place of God's habitation. And aren't you thankful? Even though the church isn't a building, Jesus said where two or more are gathered in his name, he's there among them. That means a place like this is totally unique on the face of the earth. Didn't come together by accident or happenstance or the consequences of people getting relocated for jobs and just trying to find a local church to go to. We know how God builds temples with exacting detail, bit by bit. He has a purpose in putting together the church. And that's why, yeah, I'm going to wake up every Sunday morning and roll myself out of bed and go be with the people of God so that we can take up that identity that Jesus died to give us, the place of God's habitation. All right, so that's the explanation of the passage. And I think that the particular situation of first century Ephesus is one thing. But again, we're not fighting over whether or not we should make each other observe the Jewish laws. That's an issue that's settled. We're good there. We don't need to rehash it. But if all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, then the Lord must want to speak to us from this passage for our day. Y'all believe that? If not, I don't know what I'm doing up here. Just reading a book. But God wants to speak to us and conform our wills to His. And so I've thought and prayed about these, and I want to give you these three points of application. And I've put them in first person, because I think we each need to have to think about them for ourselves. So if you write them down, I'm, they're going to start with I, I need to, but don't write Brad needs to. All right, understand, you need to do this, but we all need to. So I put it in first person, I need to. And here's the first implication of this passage. I need to evaluate the ways I perpetuate hostility and alienation in the church. Now we saw it, if you'd been a Jewish Christian in Ephesus and you'd heard this passage read, you'd heard the Gentiles who were once far off, you wouldn't have been back there in the corner going, mm-hmm, preach it, as we're far off. Now, you would have understood pretty clearly that if God had welcomed the Gentiles in, and if Jesus had obliterated the dividing wall of hostility, which was written in the law, then you'd have to let go of all those old badges of Jewish identity and self-importance. You'd understand that even though your mind had been conformed to a certain way of viewing the world, Jews over here and Gentiles over there. God had obliterated that distinction. That way of thinking was no longer kosher. You had to adopt the mind of Christ. And so each of us need to think, okay, what would that mean for me if God wants to do that in me? 
And I think we need to evaluate the ways we perpetuate hostility and alienation in the church. Oh, it's surely it's not the same kind of self-righteousness, is it? Where we think about people, oh, well, they're really solid. That's a word I use. No, he's solid. Man, that guy walks with Jesus. Do we do that? Do we create tears, circles of concentricity, where some people are closer to God than others? And because of that, we reinforce that. So well, you're not as close to God as I am. Uh, maybe. Then there are the other ones, other battlegrounds of hostility. How about mask wearers versus non-mask wearers? I mean, is there alienation and hostility on that? What about black and white? Alienation in that way? What about Democrat and Republican? What about rich and poor? Y'all ain't never seen anything like that in the church before, have you? No. Yeah, but I mean, let's, let's okay, I know I'm meddling, stepping on some toes. We know hostility is par for the course in the world. We look at it, we see it on the news, read it on Facebook. That's okay. We understand that. People who are dead in their trespasses and sins are going to do that. They're going to go along with the course of the world. They're in the stream. They're floating along, carried along. Satan constantly nagging and pestering and inserting his vile wickedness, trying to stir up more and more dissension and division. That's the way Satan works. We know that's out there. But it must not be this way with us. And so how have I perpetuated hostility and alienation in the church? I mean, Jesus left us an example of overcoming boundaries. John chapter 5, he has a long discussion with this Samaritan woman at the well, a known adulteress. He healed a Syrophoenician woman, like a modern-day Palestinian. He told the parable of the Good Samaritan. He healed lepers, and he welcomed children. And he, of course, he did this over the objections of his well-meaning disciples. And so what this tells me is that it's possible for Christians to totally miss it. To allow an, a mind that's unconformed to the mind of Christ to lead us to be totally the same as the world. To not believe that he's created something new that's overcome and transcended every normal division. I mean, if there's no, dis no distinction between Jew and Gentile, is there any justifiable basis for dividing the church of God? And Paul says in Galatians 3.28, I think he takes another comprehensive look at humanity. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, you're all one in Christ. So how have I perpetuated hostility and alienation in the church? I mean, it means we need to be wary of any organization, ideology, or public person that specializes in reinforcing and capitalizing on division. Organizations, people, ideologies, philosophies that divide have no place in the church. They're totally antithetical to the gospel. Subvert everything we say. 
And so when Christians start to divide the world up into us and them, based on skin color, party affiliation, or any other lines of common division, we've adopted the spirit of the age. And so if what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 2 is true, you know, I have more in common with a black Sudanese believer in Jesus than I do with a bunch of the people who are running around here looking like me, talking like me, and dressing like me. I'm one with that person in Christ, transcending every visible barrier in the world. And yet I'm one with them. Got more in common with a Guatemalan immigrant, can't speak a lick of English, than I do with the kids I went to high school with. Because my identity is at its core, not in the country I belong to, the state I was born and raised in, the language I speak, the color of my skin, or any such thing. It's in Jesus and Him alone. All right, so that's the first application point. The second one aren't quite as long because they kind of flow out of that. Number two, I need to pursue peace, unity, and personal reconciliation with all people, but especially with other Christians. And so I say here, this is the other side of the coin. Because if I'm not perpetuating hostility and alienation, I'm pursuing unity, peace, and reconciliation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And he's given to us this ministry of reconciliation. It is who we are. Later in Ephesians, he's going to tell the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. The letter to the Hebrews says in uh, chapter 12, 14, to strive for peace with everyone. And Paul reminds the Romans in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Peaceable. Be peaceable. Live at peace with people. So I need to pursue peace, unity, and reconciliation with all people, but especially Christians. Because here's the thing. When the, wor- the world is not blind, in one sense. They are blind in another sense. wish I could go back and redo that. The world sees the church divided. And so there's not much difference, to their mind, between us and them. But if what Paul says in Colossians 1, that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross, and in Ephesians 2, that he himself is our peace, and what Paul says in Romans 5 having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, then as we go about trying to proclaim the gospel, we undermine it by our division. And so we need to pursue peace, unity, and personal reconciliation. I mean, Jesus took this peacemaking so seriously. You probably remember in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Peacemakers are sons of God. Those who stir up divisions are of their father, the devil. But peacemakers are sons of God. I mean, he took it so seriously, he told them, told the Jews, okay, who, you got to think about this. He told them in uh, Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're there at the temple, bring in your sacrifice that you know God loves so much. But remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
In Jesus' mind, peacemaking is more important than Sunday worship attendance, than offering a gift on the altar. Peacemaking is one of the most sincere acts of worship we can give. Because, of course, Paul would say that we have peace with God, and therefore we strive to live at peace with others. And so we need to become people who overlook offenses, develop thick skin. Like Mike said in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul says we need to forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave us. Our interactions in the church need to be aimed at building each other up, overflowing with grace, so that we can demonstrate to the world what God is capable of. Of doing, of taking people from different backgrounds, different skin colors, and making them one in Christ, unifying them. So, I need to pursue peace, unity, and reconciliation with all people, but especially Christians. And finally, I need to invest my life in the church. I need to invest my life in the church. See, because what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is true then what God is doing in the church is totally unique in the world. Jews still break things down between Jews and Gentiles. The goyim, the nations, the world. But we don't judge and evaluate people that way here. We see each other as brother and sister in Christ. We are one new man, one race of people united in Christ. That's who the church is. Because of that, when we invest our lives in the church and the people who make up the church, we are investing in the only thing that will persist for all eternity. When the nations are before the Lord, they're not there because He had a quota of each individual nation. I've got to make sure I get ten of each. They're there because they're the people who heard the call of the gospel and responded to Christ in faith, and were united to one another in Him, in this new thing, this one new man called the church, which is the habitation of God. They're there on the basis of their faith in Christ. But that church already exists. Every Sunday, when people gather in Texas, and Washington, and Hong Kong, wherever they are, they are participating in the church of God, which will last forever. Now, we should pursue peace and reconciliation out there. But we do so knowing that the world is the world. And it will never achieve the same level of peace and unity that the church will. So we go out there with a grain of salt, remembering what's real. But in the church, what we see is what we see. It is real. It is happening. By His Spirit, God is making us one in Christ. And so you need to invest your, church, your life in the church. And now this is messy those of y'all who've been in the church for a long time know it's messy because when you start talking about becoming one in Christ, certain barriers do have to be transcended. There are language barriers. There are cultural barriers. There are generation gaps. The boomers. The zoomers. How do those people become one in the church? We'll see above. They sacrifice their personal desires in pursuing peace, reconciliation, and unity with the body. And that enables us to live as one in the church. And so what do you think would happen if a city as divided as ours? Look at the demographic breakdown. Do you all know the demographic breakdown of our town? Hispanic and Anglo, where that all fits. Do you know the 
animosity that manifests itself in school-aged kids along those demographic lines? What would happen if a church decided to pursue this? What Israel in Christ, what Israel by the power of the Spirit, one people united in Him, what would happen if we did the hard work of swallowing our pride and overcoming those difficult and messy barriers to be the church of God in this town? To be united despite the cost. Think that would change anything? Do you think it would trickle down and filter out as families come to know Jesus because of the testimony of a public witness in a church? I do. And so we need to invest our lives in the church. Y'all got quiet. But do you want to see that? Yeah, me too. Then, Right now, will you join me in confessing to God? You don't have to do it out loud. But confessing to God any areas in your life where you have participated in perpetuating alienation and hostility. Would you commit right now to God before God? He's the only one that matters. Commit to God to pursuing peace and unity and reconciliation with all people, but especially the church. That may mean this afternoon getting on that telephone and pursuing concrete reconciliation, saying sorry to somebody, asking for forgiveness. It may mean in your own heart telling the Lord, Lord, you know what she said to me and how bad it hurt me. But I don't want to hold it against her anymore. Will you help me let go? And will you renew your commitment to investing in the life of our church to see this kind of thing happen? If so, why don't we pray right now and ask God to help us do it?